Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Public meetings, public records, protests in an era of COVID-19 and unrest over policing practices. We're diving into changes to freedom of information and the way you get that information. From the Fox 6 studios, this is Open Record. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire, here with my colleague Brian Polson. Hi, Amanda. Today is Thursday, October 15th, and it's been almost seven months now since the COVID-19 shutdown sent everyone scrambling all across Wisconsin. It drastically changed the way we get our information, especially from government. Now, some of those changes may be here to stay. So, Amanda, let's start with public meetings because that has been drastically overhauled in the era of COVID-19. How have meetings changed since the shutdowns began in March? Well, right when everything shut down, the Office of Attorney General, which kind of oversees uh, certain aspects of Wisconsin's open meetings and open records law, they issued guidance because they realized that public meetings were going to have to change as people were concerned about the spread of COVID-19. So the Office of Attorney General uh, released basically this guidance that says you can run your meetings virtually during this era while we're trying to um, take some of these public health concerns seriously, but you also have to make it so that it's reasonably accessible to members of the public. And that phrasing is left kind of deliberately vague. So what we've seen now is a mixture of meetings that are held over Zoom, over platforms like WebEx. Uh, Sometimes it's a hybrid of virtual meetings and in-person meetings, so they'll limit the capacity of an in-person meeting and everyone else has to join virtually. We've seen a lot of municipalities eliminate public comment. By law, you don't have to allow public comment in public meetings in Wisconsin. And so we've seen the elimination of that because it's a lot harder to control and harder to corral in virtual meetings. So as a result, it means that it's harder to track down your elected leaders, right? When you knew these public meetings were happening in person, you could go see the mayor and right before or right after the meeting say, hey, I have this concern, or at least address it through public comment. Same with your members of council. Now it's a lot harder to directly address those issues. And we've seen hiccups where people have even had trouble accessing virtual meetings. I know that my concern as a journalist is it's become harder now that things have moved virtually to spot violations of open meetings laws. And that may sound like a technicality, right? I have a former colleague who we used to debate sometimes, is this is this a big deal or is it more like a speeding ticket, right? When we see a violation of the open meetings law. But the reason that these meetings are supposed to be open is to prevent corruption, to prevent these backroom deals so the public can see, so that sunshine can be let in on what's going on. And so when you can't see if meeting violations are happening, 
that then becomes an issue that's of concern to the public who wants to know that decisions are being made in a way that's on the up and up. It's an interesting thing, though, because one of the things we've discovered just as journalists doing our jobs in the COVID-19 era, we, I don't think we ever thought or imagined that news could happen from home, that news could happen <laughs> no. remotely, that we could do a podcast from separate locations and, and have this be a regular thing. So in some ways we have found, and, and our industry is not unique, many industries have found there's a lot you can do remotely. And in some cases, it's even more effective because as an example, our morning meetings where everyone in the newsroom gets together and talks about what's happening for the day, they're well attended and they're organized because there's one person leading the meeting and everyone else jumps in from home. You don't have to wait for people to arrive. People aren't necessarily straggling in late and interrupting. So it's been effective. When you apply that to government meetings, in some ways it could be more accessible for some to say, hey, I don't have time to drive down to City Hall and right. sit for three hours at a city council meeting tonight, but I can pull it up on my computer while I'm making dinner for the kids, and I can be at my local government's public meeting. So in some ways, this has been a boon for people to be able to access meetings that they might not have otherwise been able to attend. What is the problem? What are some of the problems, though, that are presented when everything is done virtually rather than how they've traditionally been done in person? Well, I'll give you an example, and this is an example that actually we were only able to catch because this meeting was open to some members of the public to attend in person. So Milwaukee Fire and Police Commission got a lot of attention earlier this year as they were making the decision to essentially oust now former Milwaukee Police Chief Alfonso Morales. And during one of those meetings, there were... I. It was a capped number of people who were allowed in the room and everyone else had to watch via another means, whether it's virtually, whether it's a screen outside. And someone noticed, someone who was in the actual meeting, noticed that the members of the Fire and Police Commission were all in a room with the door closed. There was talking that was happening and the live stream was not on. And this now, was not like an official closed session or something like that. This was not an official closed session. Now, they came back and said they were signing some documents. They believed that that was allowed under the open meetings law. But the point being that there would be no way if that meeting had been entirely virtual and no one had been in that room. There would have been no way to know that that was even happening. Now, was that an illegal meeting? I can't say because we don't know exactly what was discussed, but there was a lot of attention and they became a lot more aware of their actions after that. And it just goes to show that there are a lot of things we can't catch when things are entirely virtual. And again, it may not sound like a big deal to have all the members of a public body behind a closed door having a discussion until you take into account that they're making some of the biggest decisions. And if the public can't see how they're making those decisions on their behalf, then you don't know that everything was done by the book. And that's why we're so hawkish about making sure that people are following these open records and these open meetings laws. There's also, and Brian, you and I have run into this, there's an accountability issue. So when these meetings are all happening virtually, and there's no central location where you know these elected leaders are going to be. And I suspect that the elected leaders really enjoy this portion of having virtual meetings. 
you can't track them down with a camera and a microphone and say, hey, we've called your office seven times and you've never called us back about this really big issue. What do you have to the, say about yeah, it? The post-meeting interview is a huge point of accountability for journalists in particular who are acting on behalf of the general public to ask questions that you otherwise don't get an opportunity to ask. It's very easy to ignore or deny a request that comes by email or by voicemail. But when there's a camera there in person, we often find, I mean, you know this, Amanda, when we're there with a camera and a microphone and the meeting's over and you approach an elected official, they'll usually stop and talk because they know how bad it looks to just walk away from a journalist who's asking you questions. So it, there's definitely an accountability aspect because when you can be physically present in a place you know that elected official has to be, you can often get questions answered that are otherwise much easier to dodge. Now, that doesn't necessarily affect the average citizen who just wants to attend a meeting, and it doesn't really, it's not something that's covered under the open meetings law, but it is certainly a byproduct of what's happening virtually. There is less of an opportunity for journalists to ask questions that might be very important questions that are otherwise being dodged. Well, and it does, it does affect you in terms of accountability. The more accountable your leaders are, theoretically, the better government service you're going to get, right? So there's also another level of accountability. And by the way, I'm not saying this to discount the very serious public health concern that is COVID-19. There are very good reasons that we're not packing 300 people in a room for a meeting. But there's also a level of accountability that happens when there are 300 people in a room versus people hopping on a Zoom call, when elected leaders have to see in person the constituents who are upset about a recent decision or who feel strongly about an upcoming decision. Then there are capacity issues. So there was a municipality in Pennsylvania that recently came under fire, this public agency, because their regular capacity for meetings uh, was an auditorium that could seat easily a thousand people. While they did not pay for an upgraded version of Zoom, their meeting was capped at 100 people, and after that, the public couldn't join. Is that reasonable access for the public? And that's a really big gray area right now. A lot of what we're talking about, they're gray areas because on one hand, these public bodies still have to be able to meet. They have to do it in a way that the public can see. And so face value, virtual meetings are the easiest way to do that. Well, well you raise we, a really interesting point, though, because you said that you said at the top of that segment right there that there's good reason right now, good public health reason to be limiting access to, you know, large gatherings in, in a place and doing these things virtually. But as time goes on, there will be less and less of that reason. When the pandemic ultimately subsides, there won't be the public health concern. The question is how much of this will continue because as we know, many private businesses are saying, wow, this virtual stuff is great. We're going to keep doing that. Will public bodies, I think that's going to be really the big question once the pandemic subsides, will public bodies continue to meet virtually and will the public have lost that element of access? Well, and it will be interesting to see what the attorney general guidance is on that in the state of Wisconsin. If, for example, as a vaccine becomes widely available, do they release new guidance saying, okay, you know, the virtual option, that's not going to be as good anymore. I don't know exactly what they're going to do. I do know that another aspect of this that I've been concerned about is public records and the delays 
in accessing public records. So a lot of government functions, just like we're working from home, Brian, a lot of government employees are working remotely. So they're not in their physical offices as much to access some of these records. And some of these records, even though it's 2020, still exist only in paper format. So there have been major delays in being able to compile records, access records, make them publicly available. To me, it goes to show why there should be a push to put even more things online and make more things digitized. But the practical effect we're seeing right now is the public records responses are very slow. That means you're not getting information about your government in a timely manner. I would argue in Wisconsin, a lot of times we already weren't getting it in a timely manner because there's no set time limit on when they need to respond to some of these records requests. But it's become even slower now. And I wonder how long that will continue as the pandemic continues. Well, and, I, and it, it's, when you talk in abstract uh, generalities, it can be hard to connect with why that matters so much. But to just give one simple example, and this is one of an endless number of examples of why this matters, the pandemic will be, we hope, we pray, short-lived, that it will end at a certain point. But if there is something that your government is doing, and let's take, for example, right now, we know there are outbreaks of COVID-19 in prisons in the state of Wisconsin. And there are questions that have been raised about are inmates with COVID-19 being intermingled with inmates who don't have it? And is that furthering the spread? What are the policies of each institution? What are the policies of the Department of Corrections as a whole? If we can request records that tell us what those policies are and how that's being handled and get them in a timely fashion, we can really hold government accountable for how they're dealing with that problem while it's still a problem. If, on the other hand, it takes weeks or months to get those answers, you might not find out the mistakes that were being made if mistakes were being made until well after it's it was a concern. So timeliness when you're dealing with emergencies is very important. And right now, there in many cases, and I'm not accusing the Department of Corrections of, of, of delays here, but giving an example of why getting records quickly would be important. There are other examples where these delays mean we will get answers to things after the answers are useful. Right. Well, and not to pick on the Fire and Police Commission, but I'm going to pick on the Fire and Police Commission. I had requested records right around when they were accused of violating the open meetings law, when they were making the decision to oust uh, then Chief Morales. They would have a closed door session and then come out and just roll out a bunch of decisions in a public meeting, which made a lot of people question, did you decide this in private? I requested those records as they were happening. So that was beginning of the summer when all these issues started. We're in October. I don't have those records. So, you know, eventually when I get them, I still want to see them. But it's harder to hold people accountable in the moment for those actions when you're getting things, you know, four or five months after the fact. Records make a huge difference because they tell us what's going on, when it's going on, sort of behind the scenes in our government agencies. And those are things we are supposed to know. Those are things that are that the public is supposed to have insight into. When those things take too long to be produced or when there are barriers thrown up to seeing those things, it allows government to operate uh, with obviously far less transparency. And it's the public who pays the price for that. As we've said throughout this episode, 
there are good reasons right now that some things are the way they are. And even in, in terms of producing open records, it's understandable, certainly early on, that there were some real questions about uh, who's open, what buildings are even accessible, and and there was sort of a, a, a sense of just keeping our heads above water, whether it was a public agency or a private business. This is seven months in now, and, and operations you know, are what they are. Is there any sense that the whether it's Department of Justice or anyone else is really looking at the state of public records uh, production right now and, and whether or not that's a, the priority that the law says it ought to be? That's a good question. I mean, I know we as journalists are looking at that, um, and, and that's data that I actually regularly request from agencies as you know, the open records requests that are filed with them and, and when their responses are coming back. But in terms of DOJ, I, I haven't heard anything from them on that. I would hope that they're looking at this because that's part of what they do. That's part of how they oversee, uh, you know, the implementation of the open records and the open meetings laws. But certainly timely production of those records is is a big issue. There, there's another issue that has popped up that I want to talk about, and, and that's curfew issues that have popped up. Um, we've seen a lot of protesting over policing in all over the country, but, you know, specifically here in Wisconsin, uh, between Kenosha, Wabatosa, um, city of Milwaukee earlier in the summer, we've had several municipalities issue curfews. And all over the country, we've actually, in cases, seen journalists arrested even in cases where there are media exceptions to these curfews. And that's an issue that, Brian, you and I have talked about at length because I think sometimes there isn't really an understanding of what people are and are not allowed to do when there is a curfew in effect. Well, and I don't know that even the people who are issuing the curfews have a clear understanding of where the lines are drawn. Um, I, I think the intent in most situations is, they're, they're trying to restore order. They're trying to set some limits that they can enforce so that things don't just get out of hand. On the other hand, they are, I think in most cases, I think most government agencies that, that, that uh, list these or, or issue these curfews are trying to accommodate for traditional media coverage. The question and where it really gets gray and murky is how do you define traditional media versus obviously, you know, journalism doesn't now, isn't now just limited to three television networks and, uh, and, and one major newspaper. There are bloggers, there are citizen journalists, there are all, all sorts of people. Student journalists. Who, student journalists, people who are acting as journalists and, and they're doing legitimate coverage of, uh, or engaging in legitimate coverage of the ongoing protests. And in some cases, they're getting the most in-depth coverage because they're not saddled by maybe the, the traditional deadlines that some other organization might be so they can hang out all night and shoot video constantly. Are they journalists that are exempt from these curfew orders? You know, where, where does that line get drawn? And if you draw the line too loosely, I, I know that there are police agencies in Milwaukee County wrestling with this right now. Is if, if there is no real clear definition, can someone who is in fact intent upon violating the curfew orders simply hold up a cell phone camera, broadcast live to their Facebook audience and say, I'm a journalist now, therefore you can't make me leave. So it's a challenging thing and a difficult question, I think, that uh, that this, and this is not just pandemic related, but obviously that the, the ongoing protests have raised. Part of the issue too is even we've seen journalists with valid 
press credentials be arrested kind of in the heat of the moment as some of these situations are going on. Often these curfew ordinances will have exceptions specifically for media, but also for people who are at work, right? You need to have exceptions for people going to and from work or someone whose work might be outside overnight. You know, if you if you work as part of a construction crew overnight, are you going to be arrested for violating the curfew? So they need to have some kind of work exception. But I know that there was um, a, a really big issue uh, where a sheriff's department, I believe it was in LA, uh, arrested a reporter who, and later, they, they originally put out a statement saying that she did not have the appropriate press credentials. She did not identify herself as part of the media. And thank goodness she was recording, and this was the L.A. County Sheriff's Office we're talking about. Thank goodness she was recording video because she later recovered her phone, found the video, and you can clearly hear her screaming that she is a reporter. You can see in the video that she has press credentials hanging around her neck. She had that verification, but had she not, this otherwise false narrative would have really been perpetuated. And that was a case where it was kind of a heat in the moment situation. The uh, deputies in that case, I think, were just trying to get everybody out of there. I can't speak to their exact state of mind, but it was disturbing to me to see you know, even hours after the fact, false information being put out there about what happened. Well, and again, I think that's where the real challenge comes in in terms of determining the lines here because we talked to Amy DuPont on this podcast just last week and she experienced not only a very traumatic incident with a small group of protesters um, who had surrounded uh, her and photojournalist Eric Lichheim, but she also dealt with a situation where there were police officers that were targeting what she felt was targeting them specifically as a crew and telling them to leave a situation when they were exempt. And she made the choice ultimately to leave that situation and, and not deal with the, you know, whatever might happen in terms of a potential arrest, even if it was ultimately going to be found uh, to have been unlawful, even if it was going to be, you know, the ticket would be, uh, uh, you know, withdrawn or whatever the case may be. She didn't want to go through that mess. That did stifle their coverage that night. Um, so this is an ongoing issue. And it's something that the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press is tracking. They have been following these curfew orders nationwide uh, since really the beginning of June. They started tracking curfew orders uh, connected to protests. And so far, the, the database that they are sharing publicly uh, lists of more than 120 curfew orders that have been issued, uh, potentially as many as 145, but they actually found the text of more than 120 of these curfew orders issued in municipalities and, and government uh, uh, jurisdictions all over the country. About two-thirds of them involved some form of media exemption. The other third had no mention of any sort of exemption for, for media coverage, although some of those that didn't have a media exemption did at least clarify that if you were an essential worker or you were uh, engaging in you know essential work at that time that you were exempt and, and you certainly could argue that journalists are essential workers in the case of covering a protest. Uh, but nonetheless, none of them seem to have any real clear definition of where that line is drawn. And while you talk about, on the one end, traditional media being targeted, there is a concern that in some cases you might have law enforcement agencies or, or mayors or others who 
are sort of on their own okay with the idea of the local TV news reporter coming in or the local newspaper reporter who they may perceive to be objective, but they don't want that activist who they think is going to have a certain viewpoint out there stirring up trouble. But that activist might well be working as a journalist for a particular segment of the community. They may in fact be the voice of a certain group of people who are particularly interested in that protest. So if they are streaming on Facebook Live so that others can stay home and care for their families but know what's going on, there, you know, there, is there journalistic value to that? Should they be exempt? And that's a difficult line to draw. I think it's one that is still to be sort of determined how that's going to play out as these protests go forward. We haven't seen the last of protests, that's for sure. Um, so, so how will this play out going forward? I know it's something that RCFP is looking at, uh, and, and local municipalities here in Wisconsin are looking at because they expect to deal with this. Again, we had one situation specifically in Wauwatosa where two of the people arrested uh, ultimately said, no, we are journalists. And they had, didn't uh, identify themselves that way originally, we're told. But were they citizen journalists? What were their credentials? And do they need credentials? Because that's a real question. Do we want to limit how we define what a journalist is when there is value beyond just the journalism offered by traditional media. Well, and I get a little queasy whenever we get into the territory of government agencies being able to define what journalism is. And as much as I hate slippery slope arguments, you know, if we get into that territory, does then a government agency get to decide, you know what, I don't like Fox 6's reporting, so we're going to decide they don't count as a journalism outlet. I think wherever you end up, wherever a municipality ends up drawing the line, you need to ask yourself the question, which is worse, that I make this category too narrow and then ultimately a legitimate journalist ends up getting arrested, getting cited? Or is it worse if I make this category too wide and ultimately a few people who maybe don't deserve this designation are able to get away without a citation or an arrest. Well, I, you know, think, I think that's the challenge. If it's only a few people, then I think you right. probably err on that side. If, it, if we're if, in a if case becomes, of two people. If it becomes the situation, though, where people get the word and the word gets around fairly quickly that, hey, all you have to do is hold up your cell phone and say, I'm a journalist and you're okay, that would become a problem in terms of enforceability. I don't think we're there yet, but it's certainly a question that has to be considered because word spreads fast of how you can get around any sort of restriction. So I think that's what they're wrestling with. But I agree with you, Amanda. I think from the point when I was educated at the University of Missouri, uh, you know, there's always been discussion going back generations about whether or not journalists should be licensed, for instance. Should there be some sort of qualification or certification to be a professional journalist? And I think that's been something that this profession, this uh, that people throughout uh, newspapers and you know print media, uh, broadcast media have resisted because the idea of distinguishing a certain level of journalists from anyone of the general public creates some very tricky lines. And, and I don't think we view ourselves in this profession as, uh, and I, I use the term profession, I think some people even object to calling it a profession. Certainly it's, it's something we do for a living, but the idea that you would need to have some sort of qualification to be a journalist really sort of flies in the face of the Constitution, which essentially gives us all the right to to act as journalists. And, and we're seeing so much more of that in this day and age. So there's that very difficult fundamental question of should this be a profession with, uh, with standards that have to be cleared for you to qualify, which I think many would resist. And on the other hand, the question of then how do you give a 
carved out exemption while still applying a general curfew? And I think that's a tricky question that doesn't have easy or clean answers, uh, but certainly it's one that someone's going to have to address going forward. Uh, otherwise, these curfew orders may have very little meaning. Well, and none of these topics have easy answers or clear answers, right? Open meetings, open records, these curfew situations, who counts as a journalist. We're operating in a lot of gray, and that's the nature of the pandemic. And these are the questions we are absolutely going to be wrestling with for months and I think even years to come. Well, and that's why I said I think that the, we, we, a lot of this has been brought up now uh, because of the pandemic. But as we move forward beyond it, how much of this sticks? How much of this sticks around? I think there will be a lot more virtual meetings. And there, we didn't talk about even some of the other fallout from this, or we talked very, very little about things like public comment periods. The law doesn't require your local school board or your local city council to have a public comment period or to allow you to comment during a meeting, but most do. It's encouraged. And if they have a public comment period, they have to notice it 24 hours in advance, and they have to have a certain amount of, of time available for you to speak on whatever issue it is you choose to speak about. But in this day and age with the virtual meetings, that's so much harder to accommodate that most, uh, I, I don't know that I, I really know of any uh, government agencies that are allowing public comment in virtual I've meetings. Se I've seen some, but it, it is tricky. It's hard to manage. It's hard to uh, control who speaks for what period of time in a way that um, people have become used to managing in in-person meetings. Now, there are certain things on an agenda that require the, uh, the public be allowed to comment, and that's different from just a generalized public comment Correct. period. But it w does this spell the end of generalized public comment period so long as there are virtual meetings? I certainly hope not, but that is something that is trickier now, and it's something to consider going forward even beyond the pandemic. And one final thing I want to add is that in many of these meetings I've really noticed watching, the thing that I think strikes me more than anything is how many of the elected officials have their screens off. Uh, maybe this person speaking is on, maybe one other, one or two other people, but there might oh, be... Oh, their video you know, camera off? Their, their video camera is off. So, and why that, you know, so why is that important? Why do we have to see them? For many, many years, I've gone to public meetings and you watch what the people who aren't speaking are doing. Are they paying attention? Do they look like they're on their cell phone? Are they shopping online? Are they surfing Facebook? Um, we've seen stories in markets all over the country where an elected official was caught in meeting after meeting, you know, on eBay or, or, or doing something else. And they're criticized rightly for that because you want your government officials paying attention to what's going on. Are they paying attention if their screen is dark? How do we know? And, and so that's the law doesn't require them to have the screen on. But it is still uh, an accountability piece that we don't have uh, so far as, you know, these meetings are going right now. We could probably go on and on about these things, but there's certainly a big impact in having meetings virtually rather than in person. There is. And like I said, I, I don't think we're done wrestling with this issue. I have a feeling we'll be talking about this a lot more on this podcast. After all, it is called Open Record. And, and these are the issues we're interested in diving into. Absolutely, and we will continue bringing you these twice-weekly episodes of Open Record as we cover the COVID-19 pandemic, the presidential election just a few weeks away, police community relations, and so much more. Of course, if there's a topic you want us to discuss or an issue you think we should investigate, send us an email to fox6investigators at fox.com. Again, that is fox6investigators at fox.com. <laughs> As always, thank you to the people who make this podcast possible. Producer Pete, Dave Machuda, Suzanne Barthel, and Sarah Smith. 
Please subscribe to Open Record if you have not done that already. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Amanda St. Hilaire. And for Brian Polson, we will be back with our next regularly scheduled episode on Tuesday.